Today we have a very special guest joining us, Mars Cord. Mars is a professional mining engineer with over 30 years of progressive experience in mining operations and project management. Prior to joining Wallbridge, he held the position of Executive VP of Global Mining for Genovar, a large Canadian firm now known as WSP Global, where he led the development and growth of the company's domestic and international mining profile. During the early part of his career with Falcon Bridge, Mars was involved in mining operations in both Sudbury and Timmins. Mars's experience includes managing large, multidisciplinary teams of engineers and operators, as well as extensive experience in developing strategic growth plans and mergers and acquisitions. Thanks again for joining us on The Rocks. Let's dive in. Well, Mars, thank you so much for coming on The Rocks. We're really excited to have you on and to hear the the story of your company and what you all are doing and, and what our listeners would be really interested to hear about. Before we start, you are not having a cocktail today, right? You're just sticking to water. For now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually trying a, uh, a new bourbon, Angels Envy's, uh, the port wine finished one that they have that my COO, John, got, gave me as a birthday present last week. So that Oh, yeah. Well, happy belated. Thank you. Thank you. And and he knows that I, I really like bourbons and scotches that have like a, a rum finish to them. But this is my first oh, okay. port port wine. So that's good. Enjoy it. Thanks. I'll enjoy mine later. <laughs> <laughs> so Mars, tell us a little bit about your company. And, and I'd love you to focus on the fact that you're at this really key development stage in what you all are doing. Yeah. So Warbridge had always been known for nickel, copper nickel PGM exploration. And about late 2015, we looked at the, you know, the exploration uh, situation after the financial crisis was really forcing most of the junior companies to either look inside to see if, if they can create more value for their shareholders. Because, you know, exploration is risky and, and it takes sometimes too long, especially when it comes to base metal assets. So we assembled an M&A team, looked at a lot of projects, and we came up with this project called Fenelon, which was owned by a junior company named Balmoral Resources at the time. It was now core to them. We purchased that. And they already had about 40,000 ounces at surface that previous owners had continued to Swiss cheese with. It was high grade, but when we looked at it in the due diligence, we, we saw a lot of opportunities for us to actually, this gold system was there that nobody ever had followed up because everybody was promoting it as a high-grade deposit and really covering a very small area of 150 meters down to about 150 meters. So we purchased that. At the time when our market cap was $5 million, we purchased it for about $3.5 million in cash, and we borrowed the money, and we paid that back, by the way, mm. about 18 months after. We started exploring on it. We continued with what the previous owners had done, but we continued to expand it, but incrementally. But we'd seen a lot of targets on that, and we followed up on one of those targets. It was actually a late December, just before Christmas. Guys were going to go on holidays, taking the drills, put them on standby. One of our geologists said, you know, one of those 11 targets, if we can drill, we're already at the end of the hole. We still have two days before Christmas. We'd like to extend that hole to follow up on one of those targets. And you know your typical finds story. And uh, sure enough, about 60 meters or 70 meters past the original target, they started hitting this kind of a different type of mineralization. But it's the same gold system, but it was more of a disseminated gold, you know, 
you know, vis visible gold and everything else. We carried on drilling throughout the entire Christmas holidays and uh, past New Year's. We were over 200 and some odd meters in mineralization. This is 200 and some odd minerals, meters of mineralized gold mineralization. And that was actually the whole number 51, believe it or not. But the guys came back after the holidays and trying to name it. So my VP exploration call, and I'm going to take the credit for this because I actually said, because I heard one of them said when they wanted that target, they said, I think it's out there. That's what the, the I remember the word out there and the whole 51. So we decided to call the, the zone Area 51. That's the story of our Area 51. And then following up on that, we discovered another zone called Tabasco, which was the original theme of our deposit because it was all peppers at names, you know, Tabasco, Cayenne, and Naga Viper, and all that stuff. You know, geologists come up with these creative names. So in any case, since then, obviously, our exploration has shown that there is a large gold system. It's a multi-million ounce deposit. Our market cap reached as much as 800 million. But, you know, certainly since then, we pulled back. And that's because of this stage of the project, which is a subject of what we're going to talk about. As an exploration company, you know, you have this discovery zone, you know, this excitement, if you may, you carry on with excitement in 2019 and 2020. We created a lot of that. I mean, we had some fantastic results. We still do. But the fantastic results, if they repeat it, is no longer sexy. It's no longer exciting because everybody expects that. So, so as a result, the share has been pulled back, but the patients will be rewarded. We know that. At what point would you define a, a company or a project as hitting development stage compared to exploration? I think for some of our non-mining expert listeners, it might be helpful to clarify what that process looks like moving from exploration into development and then, of course, eventually production. So, so every project is different, obviously. You can carry out just doing exploration until you come up with your resource estimate and you carry it into an economic study and even all the way to a bankable feasibility study. And then you go and finance the project and put it into development stage and then develop that and you then bring it into production. Other projects that are hybrid, which similar to ours, is that we wanted to de-risk the project. So as a result, we did go ahead and get some infrastructure underground that can be used in the future, you know, for future operations. But so, so but it's still in a sort of exploration and development stage because you're creating some some infrastructure that you're going to use in the future. You're establishing requisite studies for the future economic studies, if you may, like geotechnical, geochemical, all of those other studies that are really needed to do. And the reason you do that is because you don't want to keep going ahead and, and drilling for a resource, come up with a resource estimate, and realize now we've got to do uh, environmental studies and we're going to have to wait two years for a water study. You carry those out in anticipation that you will bring this to this ultimate stage of production. Yeah, and even that company doesn't intend on carrying it through. You still develop the project with that intent. Right? So if it changes, perhaps it's it's still development ready. Yeah, exactly. And it's also de-risking. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, again, we all know exploration is, is risky. You know, there's, there's all sorts of risks associated. You know, aside from, from the commodity price risks, you still have, you know, the technical risks with the project, you know, water management. And, you know, there are mines that, have gone ahead and realized that the water inflows too much. They can't really do the kind of mining method they wanted to use. There's different metallurgical challenges with projects. So, so you do those studies in order to de-risk the project as well. So, so when you get into development, you don't want to continue 
spending money on a project on a wrong premise, if you may. And I used to be a qualified, I'm a mining engineer, and I used to own my own consulting company. I work for a lot of major projects as a QP. It's very important that you start the foundation right <laughs> for these development projects. I've had to explain to a lot of folks who are new to how mining works that you can have the most phenomenal asset in the world, but if it's going to cost you more to mine it, then it's really not worth anything. That's kind of where that the the engineering and the geology really have to be so in sync and planned properly, right? Yeah, I think, I think there's a terminology for, for what we call a mineral resource. It has to have reasonable expectation of an economic recovery. So, so if, if it doesn't have that, it's no longer a resource. It's just interesting mineralization. So, you know, for people that are looking to invest in the sector, what kind of benefit could an investor see by investing in a, in a company like yours that has projects at this, at this status, as opposed to maybe the risks and trade-offs of an early stage exploration company or a production company? There, I know there's a, there can be a really significant advantage. Sure. I mean, we talked about the risk in exploration. And I think that's the key thing. I mean, any, anytime you invest in any company or any project, you always want to assess your own risks, personal risk, and also the investment risk. I would probably, even as an investor myself in other projects, other companies, other assets, one of the key things that you really want to look at is the property itself. Is a project going to give me the kind of a return that I'm expecting because I'm, I'm really putting my money into this high-risk project? One. Secondly is, where is it? Because we've all heard a lot of the projects that are perhaps, I don't know, in the middle of a, an election in a country that is going to go totally different. You know that overnight the rules can change. Uh, we've seen that in major companies who have projects in, in Europe or in South America or even junior project, uh, companies that have actually gone bust as a result of the fact that things changed overnight. So, so re- jurisdiction is important. Our project, obviously, is in Canada, and it's in Quebec. It's a very friendly, money-friendly jurisdiction. And the First Nation communities really want to work with you in Quebec as well. That would be one of the major criteria, you know, aside from the property itself. But then you really want to see who's, who's running this. What's the track record? And, you know, I don't believe in the track record of somebody who sold a company had a higher price. But what I really want to know is, have they been able to deliver what the project requires? For example, Fenelon is a multi-million ounce potential that we're going to come up with a resource estimate by the third quarter of this year. And it has a lot of legs to grow at Fenelon itself. And at Walbridge, we have the entire land package from Detour Mine on the Quebec side all the way for another 97 kilometers. We basically control that entire land package. So there's also potential for organic growth on other parts of that property. So when you really look at it now, scalability is important because now you're saying is, yeah, Walbridge may have a potential for increasing my investment today by X, but what's more important is that it could potentially be two ways. One is Walbridge carries that out, and for the next many years, they cannot find others, or there are other companies that may be interested in those properties, including the entire company, and that those are the reasons why I invest in them. But if you just did exploration, which is what a lot of mining companies or exploration companies do, and you didn't come up with what the market is expecting to see, you're giving a signal that maybe the project is not good enough or whether your end game is to just sell. 
<laughs> you know, from our point of view, the end game is whatever makes best sense for our shareholders. So as a result, if you didn't do anything but just drilling it, you're not creating a lot of value because you're going to have to continue doing that development. You're going to de-risk it, bring it all the way to the next stage if it's an economic study. The economic study has to be you know, carried out to the development and the ultimate production stage. That's what I invest in. And so the investors should be cautious of the pump and dumpers, if you may, or guys who go ahead and find a hole and continue to drill in a 10 or 20 meter space to that, but then saying that we have multi-million ounce deposit, whereas incrementally it might take you 20 years before you come up with that multi-million ounce deposit, even if it has the potential. Now explain for listeners who may not know what pump and dump means. There's a lot of cannabis companies that were pump and dump, and there was a lot of, even Bitcoin these days, there's a lot of pump and dump. I mean, I guess the whole idea is that if you're promising something, you got to deliver. And if you didn't deliver what you promised, and, and I'm not talking about the fact that something that you were saying you were going to do and you couldn't do it in that period of time and it took a little longer, something that doesn't even exist, but you promised and you're not going to be able to deliver because it doesn't exist. That's pump and dump. It's all marketing, right? You're just you're doing things that just pump up the stock price so that the people who hold it can, once it gets to a certain point, can can dump what they hold and kind of cash out as opposed to staying involved with the company and actually doing the, the work that the company is raising money to do. Exactly. And how many times have you seen a lot of other companies, the junior companies that do mention in their press releases how close they are? to the good project nearby. I call that not geology, but neurology. You know, they mentioned the name. It's 35 kilometers from this property. But rea- in reality, it has no, there is no meaning to that because uh, just because it's 35 kilometers or even three kilometers from that property, the prospectivity of it has to be with geology, not necessarily with neurology. Yeah, and it's this competing thing I know when the counter-argument is, you know, look for projects near successful projects because the geology is conducive, right? So there's an element of that where you do have mining districts, of course, where you have really respective geology. But I I hear you on the, if that's all they're saying is that they're close by, your store might be, you know, might be a few blocks from a target, but that doesn't make you target. No, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. Well, no, that's really interesting. So what would you suggest if, if investors are looking at companies certainly i heard you speak to you know the experience of management right and does the company follow through on what they say they're going to do as well as the the different kinds of risk but is there anything else you would really recommend that folks look at if they're new to the industry trying to to look at different companies and projects yeah i mean everybody should do a due diligence their own due diligence and the due diligence has to start again with the what i mentioned there's certain criteria you want to look number one the property itself, the jurisdiction, management, your uh, access to capital, because you know in this industry that capital is important. Uh, there are good projects that haven't really been off, taken off the ground because they haven't been able to really put it together to be able to raise that capital that's needed to, to advance those projects. Having met all of those, you also want to look at the stage of the project. There is a Lausanne curve everybody's familiar with. I mean, I didn't want to bring that up because I think it's a cliche because everybody uses it. But in reality, it's a true, uh, now, with varying degrees, of course, because every project doesn't fit on that curve. But really what you want to look at is, is, okay, depending on whereabouts on that first curve of the Lausanne is, the company, 
how can they bring themselves back at the bottom of that Lasan curve and repeat it again? That's important because if you have a project that has a postage stamp or a company that just has a postage stamp, the opportunity for them to get themselves back at the bottom of the Lasan curve is not as much as a company that has a larger land package within the same district and has shown the potential. And this is where Walbridge is different. We're currently probably sitting around the near the top of the Lausanne first curve because we're coming up with our maiden resource and the next stage would basically be into the development portion part of it. But that's only on Fenelon. So when you really look at, you know, our Martinier, which we purchased from Balmoral, we, we basically purchased Balmoral resources last year, which is all of the outstanding shares on the properties of Balmoral. So they've identified other large gold systems on this, in this camp. So for a company that is able to carry themselves back at the bottom of that Lassonde, let's just say today we're trading at, say, 60 cents. If we come up with another project and you're at 60 cents, when we bought Balmoral, we were at 7 cents and we reached $1.30. And today we're trading around 60. So we're still about an 8 to 9 multiple. But you imagine if you could put yourself today at the same stage on the Lausanne curve, that opportunity exists for it to still be multiples of where we are today. That's where you want to invest. You want to invest in those companies that have that kind of opportunity afforded to you. That really is something important for people who are new to understand that for for companies like Wallbridge, you do you may have one one key asset, but when you have multiple projects, I think people think of a mining company and they think of one big mine. In reality, you never stop doing exploration, whether that's inside of the deposit you're mining, right? And continuing to, to grow your, your assets. So it's important not just to look at the project that's the farthest along, but like you're saying, what's the pipeline, right? What's going to be coming in next to, to kind of pull that back? Yeah. And, and that's same, by the way, same goes for even investing in, a, in operating companies. Because if you have an operating company that has only one project, the odds of another discovery on that same company project as opposed to that company having two assets is less, right? I mean, I mean, that's why companies like Barrick or Agnico or Kirkland or other com- large companies, Newmont, Goldcorp, these guys have more than one, op- one operation. And there's a reason for it. And it's a multi-asset operations, and that's how you get value from it. If Weststone Gold Mines only had the Eagle property, uh, even though it has had quite a long, long life, at one point it's going to be depleted. You know, or it gets too expensive because it might go too deep. So now they have the Kino project. So, so obviously, if they just had Kino now or have Kino four years from now, if they don't add to it, the market expects that to not give them the same premium as they are getting today. If Kirkland only had Macassar, wouldn't work because they needed the Fosterville. And then, obviously, they need to add more if they continue to deplete. And same thing with Barrick or Agnico. Every time you deplete, you better be able to re- replenish. Otherwise, you're really getting taken value from your company every day. I always tell people also to look at the exploration budget of those bigger companies. You know, certainly companies grow through acquisition as well. But I know I've had a few conversations within the within the larger companies that, that they can really do exploration very efficiently. They can add ounces very efficiently and at a lower price when, when you get to a certain point, right? Because you're large enough to have those operational efficiencies. But it's still important to make sure that the company is investing in exploration. It would be like if Prospector, you know, we're a mining technology firm. If we weren't investing in research and development, don't invest in us. 
right? Because we're not going to be coming out with anything new, right? How do you grow if you're not investing in growth? Yeah, and the unfortunate part about the industry as a whole is at least, at least in my lifetime and my career, I worked for large companies. And typically when the market price, when the commodity prices were down, the very first thing that got slashed was exploration teams. Because at the time they believed we already have another 10 years, we catch up later. Whereas it's not true because at the end of the day, if you don't continue doing exploration, you basically have to live with what you thought that you have for the next seven or 10 years. But you never found something, maybe something was better than what you have today and you're not getting any value for it. And that's one of the reasons I've always believed that major fines are typically not done by major companies, but by they've been done by junior exploration companies. We talk a lot on this podcast about how important the juniors are. They're very different from the from the larger companies, but they're so critical to how the industry operates because they take that high level of risk and they create that. Exactly. And, but the rewards are better for the investors in terms of, you know, if Barrick tomorrow found a 5 million ounce deposit, it's not going to move the needle on their share price. Whereas a junior company that can come up with a 5 million ounce deposit can certainly give you a lot of multiples. So, so, so that's exactly why... <laughs> right. Company is junior, the company, junior exploration companies don't give dividends, but yeah. when they give dividends, they give it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true. Now, you you had mentioned um, something when we were talking a little while ago too about how important your you know sustainability and you know, kind of those factors are and or in in the context too of being in a lower risk area and the first nations support of your project and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that cuz i also think when people hear esg they're thinking like oh i'm worried about pollution in a cobalt mine in africa with child labor right and it's equally as important in a in a more advanced jurisdiction like quebec when it comes to legislation and regulation i think i think when you're in most developed countries, Canada being one of them, the E portion has already been taken care of in majority of cases by the regulations and the governments. It's really the SNG that we want. We focus on our environmental, not because of the regulation, but we know how it's been done. It's been done for so long. There is guidelines for it and everything else. But when it comes to the essence, the social and the governance points, it's really important for companies to focus on those. One of the things we did, and I mean, this comes from my consulting days because I also consult for a lot of First Nation communities when I own my consulting company. And one of the things that I used to hate was when mining companies used to go to the First Nation communities when they needed their signature on a document or when they needed them. And the last thing you do to a team, that to a group that you want to be partners with is to sandbag them for the entire project and then go back when you need them. When we purchased Fanon, we were going to a, we, we were an Ontario based company. We were going to a different province with a different language and a different environment altogether and different First Nation communities. Uh, so, so one of the things we said is we are going to first day that we purchased, we met with the, with the various First Nation groups and we explained who we are. We're, we're coming in here. We are, you know, new neighbor and we decided to send them a monthly report, which we still do, but now it's weekly meetings with them, but for the first few years, we gave them a monthly report of what we did the month before and what we're planning to do next month. So they were aware. Even though we may not have anything to do with them, we kept them abreast of what was going on. And so today, we have weekly meetings with our three First Nation communities. Every week, my VP Mining and our project manager meets with them. So 
the social aspect is important. The other thing is being local, because at the end of the day, if you're going somewhere, whether you're going to Finland or to Ecuador or you're going to Quebec, you better make sure you utilize the existing local resources first, regardless of whether it's the labor resource, whether it's the supply resources or whatnot, because that's important because you get the community support right behind you. When you need them, they know that that's also their livelihood. Right. It's benefiting them as well as the company. Exactly. So, so one of the things we've done is we've made sure that we maximize the local resources unless they're not available, unless that technical expertise or that supply is not available. Most of our supplies come from Metogamy or Lassar or, or Ruan and Valdor area. It doesn't come from Ontario. And so, so, so those are, those are, the, those are another parts of the social side that you really need to take care of. On the governance side, it's also important to make sure that what you say is what you do. And, and that's important. And, and I'm, on a corporate governance side, we certainly have a pretty good corporate uh, governance committee. Our board of directors are very cognizant of what's going on around us. Uh, we have very stringent policies and procedures, if you may. In fact, to be honest with you, we used to always, we had a former chairman who's passed away, and he used to say, you got to act like a big guy in order to be recognized as reputable. So, so we always had advanced ourselves better than just a junior company. So, so, but even on the local side, in terms of operations, you need some governances. You need some internal controls to make sure that, you know, you're not creating a kind of a, a practice that could potentially impact your shareholders. Because at the end of the day, we all work for our shareholders. I mean, I'm, I'm employed by them. I've got to make sure that I protect their investment. And protecting their investment also means that we do the right things. My, my career started in consulting as well with IBM's consulting group and uh, out of college. And so much of what I learned as a consultant has informed what I do now as a, as a business owner and as a leader, because you work with so many different kinds of clients on different kinds of problems, and you see commonalities uh, across businesses, right? And, you know, key lessons you pull out of that. And I wonder if, if that's been similar to your experience. Yeah, it has. As a matter of fact, our chairman, who used to be the CEO prior to me joining, also used to work for a consulting company. So as a result, the kind of environment and the work environment we had created, and we have so far even, is that we don't, we want to develop people. So, so our geologists aren't just core loggers. Uh, they don't have a certain silo that they only do this every day. We actually give assignment to the geologists that they actually get to talk to the drillers, you know, plan the drill holes, see the core, log the core, but then realize how is, how's that put into the model. They are part of that modeling process. And all the way, even on the when we were doing the bulk sample, even on the underground portion, we rotated the geologists to, so they actually see the material that was coming out of the stokes so they could see that. So what they designed or modeled as a resource, they ended up seeing it coming out and see the result from a metallurgical side in the mill. So they saw the gold bar coming out of it. So those are the reasons why, as a consultant, you almost create that entrepreneurial aspect within the organization. I hope we can continue to do that. Of course, it gets more difficult as the company grows. I mean, uh, when I started, the company had 16 employees. Today, we're over 100 employees. And together with the contractors, we have over 200 and some odd people at the site. So, so, so things can become more difficult. I was telling one person that every time we hire an employee, there's a list that comes out. I go on LinkedIn search to see if they're available, and I actually connect with them because I want to connect with them. But I'm not sure for how long I can do that 
if we continue to grow. <laughs> no, it's a, I mean, the ability to scale is a challenge for, for every kind of business, right? I and mean, you hit those, those kind of true growth points. I mean, that's where I think management and the company culture becomes so important because you've got to be ready to jump on it, right? When the opportunity is there, both you've got to be able to do it, but do it smartly and keep everybody invested and, and on the same page. I've seen that and, you know, working for, you know, some of the biggest companies like IBM, and I worked for the US Department of Defense for years, down to being an entrepreneur. And it's when you hit those moments, and it sounds like Wallbridge is kind of at one of those moments, too, where, man, buckle up, everybody, right? (laughs) That's why you always, you always sort of build around the existing team that you've created, and you build as a fit for purpose, you know, if you need, like, for example, we knew that, as you continue to grow, you know, we had a small HR group. Now we're looking for a human resources manager to be able to put everything together, make sure the policies are right, make sure it's being followed. And, and you know, retention is important for us because we want the A-team of every person. You know, all of our people should be the A-team, right? So to keep them, you want to make sure you've done everything for them, that they have no choice but wanting to stay with you because that's the best for <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I think that's, I mean, that's wonderful to hear because you don't oftentimes hear companies in our industry, you know, they talk about their assets and they're talking about the geology. But what I hear you saying is, you know, your people are really your greatest asset. And it's easy to put that on, you know, your recruiting language and stuff. But it really is if you aren't investing in your people and, and keeping them integrated in with what you're doing, then they're punch in a clock as opposed to bringing their full capabilities to the table. No doubt in my mind. And in fact, I know some junior companies don't necessarily, and by the way, like Warbridge, up to the time that we had Princess Farallon, I don't believe we ever laid off anybody because we had a joint venture with various larger companies that we carried out exploration even in down cycles. But uh, one of the things that uh, that's important is the development of the staff to make sure you keep them. And to keep them happy, they're the biggest asset of the company. You can you can raise hundred million dollars today, and bring twenty four drills in there. If you don't have anybody to to, to process that, the the core, model it, understanding it, and not wasting the shareholders' money, you need to make sure you keep the good people around. And so that is the biggest asset you have is your is your human assets. So. Yeah, and I, I mean this is a, a bit of a diversion in in some sense, but. We did a, an episode with a mining headhunter or a recruiter a few episodes back. And she was talking about the kind of the skills gap or the interest gap, rather, right, in the younger generation and trying to attract people into the mining space. Is that something that, that you all are seeing at Wallbridge or do you have a, is that something you're focused on? Well, it certainly are. I mean, it, it's, it, it's a dilemma that we're all facing with the new generation. Obviously, there's, a, there's certain expectations from the employer, if you may, for the new generation uh, in terms of the work environment, in terms of the um, work commitments. You know, I have three kids who are aged between 30 and 26. They're all employed, but certainly the expectations that they have from their employer is much different than what I would have had when I was their age when I was working. There's certainly the loyalty is there because obviously they're getting paid for it. But from my point of view is you have to understand the basic needs. So as long as the basic needs are met, and that's being competitive in the industry, that's being the make sure your camp is better than other camps. So that way, you know, you, you, you make sure that they're welcome there, that they can feel at home. But more importantly, you're going to have to make sure you develop or foster a culture that they understand that they're not stuck at the job. One of the key things for us is 
if you gotta, if you're looking for to fill a position, first and foremost, you better look inside to see who you're gonna be able to promote to that position first before you apply somewhere else. That's key because that that even if you do one one a year, people understand that I have opportunities to grow. I don't. I'm not always stuck in this position, and that's what we've done. And in fact, our VP exploration was one of our project geologists that is now our VP exploration. Uh, that came through. In fact, he was our student that we had sponsored his PhD program, and he's now our VP exploration. One of our senior project geologists was again another student about seven or eight years ago. You know, he's one of our senior project geos. And these are all young guys, ambitious, hungry to to discover. <laughs> and uh, and so, so you want to make sure you take care of them. No, and that's where I think uh, so much of what I see when I talk to the younger generation is, you know, wanting to understand the impact of mining on the world at large, right? And I think we, we under-communicate as an industry how critical we are to the future. We are literally pulling out the, the, the materials that will be used to build the low-carbon economy, right, and renewable energy and electric vehicles. Like, the, the world cannot do all of that without our industry. And, and getting into mining and exploration is a way to participate in that at the very, like, kind of that seed stage of what goes on. And I think that's the biggest thing that I wish we as an industry talked about more and communicated, as well as the fact that people who get into this industry love the outdoors and the environment, and we love adventure. Like people don't willingly go walk out into the middle of nowhere to look for rocks who (laughs) who hate the environment and don't ever want to do anything fun, right? Like we're, we're a really fun and environmentally sensitive community. And I think that's the other message that, that needs to get out to convince young people to take a look at it, as well as the level of technology that we use now. Exactly. I think we're, we're behind in two areas. Number one is education, as you mentioned. The whole industry as a whole has done a lousy job in order to educate, right from the young, perhaps even at the less than the high school, pre-high school type of that time, when people are, kids are developing sort of a, a, a desire or some sort of a tendency towards something. And that's when you can, you can start talking about the importance of mining, the, the fun that they can have being a geologist out in the field or a mining, a, the underground mining. I'm a mining engineer. I find the underground actually is, especially if you live in the Northern Ontario, if you live in the Sub-Saharan, temperatures never change much underground. It always doesn't go too deep. So it's actually a pretty good climate, you know, and it's safe. It's just as safe as a factory you know, floor. So, so in that, in, in that's one area. And I think the, the second part of, of, of where we are lacking in terms of uh, mining is, is the fact that we're not explaining enough to the population as a whole how important the elements that we produce are to their everyday life. Yeah, I, I'm seeing some of that creep into normal conversation with the focus on critical minerals, right, and, and stuff like that. It seems like it's becoming more of a more of a topic, but I, I think that's the biggest thing that we could do because it's... It, and I always tell people, like, if you would invest in Tesla, why wouldn't you invest in the companies that mine the metal that make the Tesla cars and the lithium batteries? Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mars, for joining us. I look forward to, to following along and seeing how your company and your team do. And we look forward to having you back on sometime soon. Excellent, Emily. It was nice to meet you. And thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Thank you to our guest and my colleague, Mars Cord, for joining us on this episode of On the Rocks. To learn more about Mars and Wallbridge, 
Visit wallbridge.com and check them out on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. For more about Prospector, go to prospectorportal.com or check us out on Instagram at prospectorai and LinkedIn at prospectorportal. Thanks for joining us on the rocks. Until next time, keep your glasses full and your ice cold. Cheers. Cheers.